welcome to our first video podcast this is the mindful initiative so far you have been listening to us on audio and what an honor to have krishna das as our first guest everybody's stuck we're all stuck but for me you know i'm in the water up to here i'm in the water right immersed in the water right up to here so if i stay like this i can breathe chanting keeps me right here if i don't sing i go down maharaj is nothing special but his body fills the universe it's like trying to explain the sun to somebody you can't explain how is that light permeates everywhere and all the, all the darkness disappears the minute the sun arrives so one day i was on the roof with one of these great this incredible murdan player and he just was asking me about my life you know he said oh you know are you married i said yeah thinking about the, the divorce that was coming do you have a house yeah and he went oh, you have a house and i was thinking about the mortgage that has to be paid do you have a car Yeah. Oh, you have a car and I'm thinking that, you know, yeah, I have to pay for those, you know, and I have to work so hard. It was everything I had he wanted. And I said to him, "Are bhai tum pagal ho kya? What is this? You want these things. All you do, you're so lucky. All you do is you wake up in the morning using Hari Krishna, you go to sleep. That's all you have. What more could you ask?" And he thought I was crazy, and I thought he was crazy. Thank you so much Krishna Das for being here. Uh thank you for accepting our invitation uh to be on the Mindful Initiative podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Uh it's funny that you should invite a, a mindless person to a mindful podcast. <laughs> But uh you know I'll pretend I have something up there. I don't know. So Krishna Das doesn't need any introduction. but there are people who may not know much about his life he's a rock star uh, layering traditional kirtan with instantly accessible melodies and modern instrumentation krishnadas has been called yoga's rock star with a remarkably soulful voice that touches the deepest chord in even the most casual listener me being one my family my friends being so many others Krishnadas known to friends family and fans as simply KD has taken the call and response chanting out of yoga centers and into concert halls becoming a worldwide icon and the best selling western chant artist of all time In 1994 KD started leading chant at Jiva Mukti Yoga Center in New York City with an ever growing audience of yoga students that has led him to chant with people all around the world as we know rest is history and we'll cover that history in today's podcast his album live ananda which was released in 2012 was nominated for a grammy in the best new age album category in february 2013 kd performed at the grammy awards in los angeles Thank you again for being here uh, Krishnadas uh, 
And may I call you KD? I, I read from your bio, but is it okay to call you KD or would you prefer Krishna? Absolutely. You can call me whatever you want, actually, but KD is good. So one of the first things that we do in our podcast is get to know a little bit more about our, our guest, uh, especially about their upbringing. Uh, and during the upbringing, if spirituality was part of their life, and if it was, in what form? So if you can tell us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing, uh, that'll be great. Yeah, there was no... My parents were raised Jewish in uh, New York. and uh, But I, I never felt any... It was, it was a family thing. It was a cultural thing. It wasn't a religious thing. Nobody in my family believed in God. And so I never had any understanding that there was anything to find in life at all. And yet I had this, like a hole in my heart that was not being filled. And I didn't know, I just felt I was searching for something, some kind of happiness, but I didn't know what it was, you know. And uh, so it was a very difficult time being growing up and my teenage years were very difficult for me because uh, everybody around me was seemingly okay, and outwardly I looked okay, but inwardly I wasn't. In fact, I was talking to an old high school friend not too long ago, and she said to me, so, and they, you know, they know what I do, they know all about me, but this is, she goes, so why did you go to India? And I went, whoa, you know, no, none of this group of friends have ever asked me that question. So I said, well, you know, I felt that I was missing something, there was something it was like a hole in my heart and it needed to be filled. I didn't know what what to do. So I, I went to India. And she said, oh, I never felt that. And, you know, my heart just broke at that moment. Of course. She never felt that longing. She never felt that lack of fullness. And so she never searched for anything, even to this day. It was really powerful moment for me, you know, and it just showed me how different I was even way back then, you know. So it was really, in those days, I, I just ran around after any Swami who came to America. There were only a few at that time who had come. But it wasn't until I met Ramdas, uh, who was known as Richard Alpert, who came to India and met our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and then came back to America. It wasn't after I, until I met him after he came back from his first trip, that uh, my life really took a very different turn in the right direction. I walked into the room where he was sitting, and without eye contact, without a word being spoken, just walking into that room, all of a sudden I knew that whatever it was I was looking for in life was real. You could find it. It was in the world. This is what went into my head, came into my head. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what to call it, but all of a sudden I knew, oh yeah, it, whatever it is, is real. It's not just something in books. And so that led me to be very, become very close with Ram Dass. And then after about a year and a half, I came to meet the Guru in uh, the hills near Nanital. Uh, thank you uh, for that, that background. And, uh, and Ramdas being such a part, you know, we can, we can talk hours and hours about him and, and your interaction. And you mentioned that 
you got to know of Ramdas. So I couldn't find how did you get to know about Ramdas? Uh, that's one one thing that I was not able to find out. I was living on this farm in upstate New York, and it was owned by some friends of mine who were wild, crazy mountain climbers and psychologists and professors and what they call acid heads. They used to take LSD and climb huge mountains. They were wild people, great people. So they had heard about him, and uh, they knew about him from his days at Harvard as a psychologist. So they went to see him, and they asked me if I wanted to go, and I said, nah, I don't care about white yogis, American yogis, who cares about those people? You know, bullshit. So they went, and they were supposed to come back the next day. They didn't come back for like three days. And when the guy came, he drove up, he got out of the car, and he turned around, and he looked at me, and there was light shooting out of his head, you know. I, I went, right down the directions, I'm leaving right away, you know. And I ran out to my house, I got my stuff together, and I drove all night. It was a real pilgrimage. So, and that, that changed my life, that everything came from that. So you talk a lot about heart in, in almost everything uh, that you do, your, uh, your book, your film, and you sing from the heart. And even in, in the first conversation, it was the longing of the heart that you bring up. And given the age that you were at that point of time, a lot of people are disconnected from the heart. Even if you look at current generation, we are very away from the heart. We are a very mind sort of a, a mind sort of a generation. And you mentioned that you were a very different or you were different. And, and to get to that level, you know, there is, I think there is that some karma that comes along as to who you are as an individual. And many people are not fortunate that way. And if you're not, what is that you recommend for, for such a group that how do you connect to your heart rather than from the mind? One has to be a little bit particular when one uses these terms. We have to know what we're talking about. Heart doesn't mean emotion, and it doesn't mean love in the usual sense that the word is used. And mind doesn't necessarily mean thoughts either. Man actually means heart and mind. In, in the deepest sense, it's the center of consciousness in your being. It's the center of awareness. It's the connection to the universe, the place where we are connected. We are not connected in our thoughts and emotions and in the stories we tell ourselves all day long about who we think we are. We're connected in, in a deeper place. And you can call that heart, you could call that mind with a capital M. And what we really want looking for is connection that's where reality is that's where our true nature is it's always connected but we're turned away from it so whether you call it heart or call it mind it's not thoughts it's not emotions it's a deeper presence within us so it's not always necessarily like what we talk in the world as love between two things. That's not love. Real love is it's not between two things. It's actually our true nature. And in some traditions, that's called natural mind. And in some traditions, it's called, you know, heartfulness, the heart. Everybody wants the same thing, but not everyone 
knows where to look. Most of us don't know how to look or where to look. But we, everybody has the longing to be happy. It's just that we don't truly believe that there is a happiness within us and a, a love that's within us and a connection that's within us that's our true nature, you know, our soul, so to speak. So we try to plug in all these external pleasures to take the place of that, but it doesn't work. And unless a person has the presence of mind or presence of heart to, to see, number one, that those things don't work, but also have the understanding that the desire to, well, is there something that does work? Most people don't ask that question. They just keep plugging in external things, relationships, jobs, stuff, houses, cars, you know, all that stuff that we do in worldly life. But that'll never be enough. And you you said karma, so you could possibly say that the people who have a kind of karmic ripeness, you know, are riper, more ripe, recognize, number one, that stuff will never be enough, and two, that, well, what is enough? They ask, they know enough to ask that question, and that leads them on, you know, a spiritual journey. What's really heartbreaking and what really pushes the compassion button is when you see people who don't know enough to look for something deeper, and they suffer needlessly, or they at least they suffer with no, no positive uh, results. Because sometimes suffering can bring you closer to that, because you need to relieve. You know, if you've stepped on a nail or you've stepped on a, a splinter, you know you've got to get it out of your foot. But some people don't recognize that, and so they they keep suffering. All of us, we we keep suffering, and it doesn't wake us up enough to really look for something deeper. I think you you touch the core that we don't look deeper. Um, and for me, uh, I think in in the initial years before I was on the path, I was one. I didn't know what it meant for me personally to look deeper. And second, I think looking deeper made me fearful because it showed me the uh, the reality. And I think for you, what I've loved always is you finding Maharaj, you, your first trip to India. And I think I've heard that story multiple times, but I would love to hear it again. Someone who's a guru, who's a teacher, who can take away some of, some of the fears, probably. Maharaj was not a teacher. He didn't teach, he didn't preach, he didn't write books. He's a, a, a siddha, and he just changed things. He just said, I only know one thing, I know how to change hearts. And he just could light you up, you know. And But see, I first met Maharaji the day that I met Ramdas. When I understood later, that's what I felt, you know. I didn't know what it was at that point, but when later I realized oh, that's that was Maharaji, and he was transmitting through Ramdas very strongly. And that's what I felt. And then when I went to see him for the first time, it was actually confusing for a minute because I had felt he had been with me ever since that moment when I met Ramdas a year and a half before. And then I walked into this room and there's this little old guy in a blanket. And I thought, wait a minute, how does the whole universe fit into that blanket, you know? How does that work? It was like, ah, uh, 
it passed, you know, and then I, I began to see how that uni- the whole universe fits into that blanket. But at first it was, it was like shock, a shock because he'd been so present with me and so much a part of my life and my inner life. Now he, I could see he talks, he moves, he, you know, it was like, wow. So it was a, it was, it was a big moment. But it was also, it felt like a continuation. It didn't feel new, actually. I felt like I had come home, and it wasn't new. It was some feeling that I recognized already. When you talk about Maharaji, uh, we would love to go a little bit more deeper in, in your first interaction, know a little bit more. And if you remember Swami Atmanandaji from the Shivananda tradition? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I haven't seen him for many years. Is he still with us or has he passed? Yes, yeah, I just spoke to him about you. Uh, and he's like, Achha gata hai, Krishna. That's bahut achha gata hai. <laughs> he was fond of remembering I, I, I loved him so much. I looked for him some years ago, but I couldn't find him. He had been staying in Minneapolis, but he left that place, and uh, I had no way of getting in touch with him. I just wanted to be in touch with him again. Yeah, I, I'll let you know after the... Uh, yeah, but he said, ask him about Maharaji. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, you know, someone wrote, uh, Maharaji is nothing special, but his body fills the universe. It's like trying to explain the sun to somebody. You can't explain how is that light permeates everywhere. And all the, all the darkness disappears the minute the sun arrives. And um, Maharaji is, is just, you know, from a Westerner's point of view, we, as we spent time in India, I spent two and a half years there in India the first time I came. He kept me here. He allowed, you know, he, he got my visa extended. But uh, we began, we went, well, how do you do this? You know, how do you relate? And we saw that the Indian people, his devotees related to him as, as if he is Hanuman. But some of his older devotees, they treated him as if he was Shiva himself. And of course, you know, Hanumanji is a form of Shiva. And so it was, the more we got, you know, we, we wanted, how do we do this? You know, how do we, how do we get closer and how do we relate? You know, we needed to learn, you know, in a certain kind of way, how to be a part of the, the satsang. And, uh, you know, all his temples are Hanuman temples. And so we got with the program, you know. We learned Hanuman Chalisa and... And we used to sing to Maharaji, and he loved that. And that's how, that's the only reason I'm singing today is because we learned to sing, to chant, because he liked it. And if he liked it, then he would call us and we would get to spend more time with him. There was nothing spiritual about it. You know, we didn't think of it as a spiritual practice. We just thought, he likes it, we'll do it, he'll call us, and then we can be with him more. And that's what happened. So, but of course, after he left the body, it became obvious to me that the chanting was the only thing that I could do to bring myself back into that presence, even though he was not in the body at that point, at least it seemed that way. I had lost my connection, so I needed, 
the chanting became my way of entering more deeply again into his presence, into that presence. That's what it is for me. It's nothing else. I don't know anything about anything. I mean, I know the basics of, you know, the deities and, and this little things here. But coming from the West, it's very hard to really see it with Indian eyes, so to speak, you know. But for me, it's about being in his presence because his presence is the whole universe. Everything is God for me. And that's how the, that's what the chanting does for me, and it's obvious that some people also feel something when we chant together, which is him. You know, it's his, he's transmitting. He's opening hearts, cleaning out the garbage. So you talked about singing, and chanting is, has been part of all of our lives. And when you were in Stony Brook, uh, that's where you wanted to be a, a singer and, and there was a band that you were part of. So the intention came in uh, while you were at college or was it even before that? No, I was always singing. Uh, music was, and still obviously, is a big part of my life. But it wasn't because of Maharaji. Those karmas of becoming a musician and maybe even being famous as a musician in a worldly sense, those karmas were transformed into a spiritual practice, into a spiritual reality. So growing up in, in the West, all I knew was rock and roll, you know, music. So I wanted to be a rock star, a singer. Now I'm getting everything I would have gotten from accomplishing that, but I'm getting it in a way that's actually good for me and good for other people. If I had gone that other direction and joined that band, I would have been dead a long time ago. No question about it. I have very destructive, self-destructive tendencies, and that would have fed them all, and I would have been gone. But he took that karma and transformed it. So it's incredible. It's just a miracle, if you really look at it. It's a complete parallel universe to what could have happened. And... He changed all that karma, and he just created this whole leela, which is amazing. So it's the prarad karma, the karma that you came in, and pureness of your heart probably moved you in, in, in that direction. And and that reminds me of a story in, in your book and about this, uh, I think it was after passing of Maharaji, you were playing on uh, on a rooftop with a young child who was playing tabla, or I don't think it was a child, who was... Uh, Asking you, do you have a family? Do you have a house? Do you remember that story? Yeah, it's this young Vaishnava drummer, Maradanga player. From the, you know, Maharaji always had Mahamantra chanted at the temples that he would, his temples, as long as they were open every day, all day long. So one day I was on the roof with one of these great, this incredible Maradanga player. And he just was asking me about my life, you know. He said, oh, you know, are you married? I said, yeah, thinking about the, the divorce that was coming. Do you have a house? Yeah. And he went, oh, you have a house? And I was thinking about the mortgage that has to be paid. Do you have a car? Yeah. Oh, you have a car? And I'm thinking about, you know, yeah, I have to pay for those, you know, and I have to work so hard. It was everything I had, he wanted. And I said to him, what is this? You want these things? All you do, you're so lucky. All you do is you wake up in the morning, you sing Hare Krishna, you go to sleep. That's all you have. What more could you ask? And he thought I was crazy, and I thought he was crazy. <laughs> you know? I don't know where he is now, but I'm sure he doesn't have a car and a wife and a mortgage. 
And that was the other sad thing. He had these desires, but there was no way that they were going to be able to be fulfilled in that, in that life, as far as it looked like to me at that time. He was just a poor, simple kid, you know? And he never had the opportunity to satisfy those desires. But on the other hand, he could sing, you know, Ram Nam all day long. So it was very... But look what happens. So now what do I do? I wake up in the morning, I sing Hare Krishna, I go to sleep. <laughs> so that's nice. I think I, sometimes I find that to be the epitome of life. What we have is what we don't want. Mm. And what others have is what we desire. And, uh, and I think from that perspective, the attachment comes in. And yeah. uh, I think in, uh, in the talk that I heard uh, when we heard you live, one of the extraordinary thing was KK, if I'm not wrong, was the name of the person. He was there. You had brought him from India at that point of time. Oh, he was there that day, yeah. And, right. and you shared some stories and, uh, about how you met him and how he introduced you. And, uh, yeah. and after you guys met Maharaji for the first time and Maharaji told him, something of that, something of that, <laughs> yeah. something of that yeah. regard. So it's a, a beautiful thing yeah. that, that what we feel that what we have is not enough. So there is this longing of, of more and more. But that begs a question in my mind that when we sing for Lord, when we sing for our Guru, when we go beyond the, the natural thing, how do you keep yourself motivated day in and day out to, to keep doing that? Uh, I'm not just specifically talking about you per se, but, you know, if, people who are doing that, uh, spiritual saints. And, and to that regard, I'm asking people who live in a regular life, we feel that we get stuck sometimes. Everybody's stuck. We're all stuck. But for me, you know, I'm in the water up to here. I'm in the water, right? Immersed in the water, right up to here. So if I stay like this, I can breathe. Chanting keeps me right here. If I don't sing, I go down. And I, I'm finished. So I have to keep chanting just to be able to stay alive and breathe. And what you're saying is, you know, this is what Buddha said. He came out of the jungle and he said, yo, monks, there is suffering inherent in everything in this world. And if you're not paying attention, you get born, you mess around a little bit and you die. And you're never here for a moment. You never wake up. But if you pay attention then you see that everything... For instance, you say you, we look at other people and we want what they have. That's only our projection. If we could feel what's in their minds and in their hearts, how they're not happy even though they have that, then that would change the way we look about things. Then we would look around and we'd see, you know what? There's nobody out there that's happy and satisfied. The people who have a lot are worried about losing it. And the people who don't have a lot want to get more. Same problem. So that's the recognition of, of the samsaric reality. And that's what keeps you doing practice. You recognize there's no hope out there for any kind of peace of mind or any kind of real connection and real love and real happiness. There's nothing out there. You look around. And it, every day gets worse, looks like these days. So it's a recognition of that that forces us to look within, if we're ripe enough, if we have that grace to recognize that and look within, and begin to look within and start to look at our thoughts and start to learn how to release our thoughts. It's only our thoughts and emotions that cause us suffering. 
The same thing can happen to two people. I know two women. Each one of them lost a child to disease, sickness. One of them was destroyed by that, and just her life was destroyed. The other one managed to embrace that and deal with it and overcome the sadness and find a way to live with it in a way that really helped her develop as a person. The same event happened to two people, but the results were very different. So if we look at that, we see it's our responsibility to deal with our stuff. Nobody can deal with it for us. We have to enter onto the path. We have to start learning how to release the, the negative stories we tell ourselves and all the things we think and how everything we think we are. We have to begin, let go of those little by little so that we can become more familiar with sitting more deeply in ourselves. And the chants, these names of God, what are the, the names of, they're not the names of something out there. They're the names of our own true nature. Our own soul is not different from, the, the Atman is not different than from the Paramatman. It's essentially the same, the same light. Not as, you know, huge in some sense, but it's the same. The quality is the same. So this is the name of the, our own true nature, these names. So by the repetition of the name, we're pulled into ourself, and we get the strength to release everything that keeps us glued to the external world and the thoughts and emotions and stuff like that. Little by little, practice. That's why they call it this. You have to do it. If you don't do it, kuchane yoga. Thus spake Krishnadas. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you, you brought in death and given we're in the still in the middle of pandemic after a year like you know hopefully we're coming to the to the end part with vaccinations and and some of the other things and uh, i think the impermanence of life is something that we're all aware of but we ignore and and we move away and i think especially in the indian tradition i have seen that as kids we were not never talk to about death or even when family members and friends passed away we didn't go to cremations or uh, or even you know it was not even talked about but this has become so real and ramdas passed away last year as well and your relationship goes so many years you mentioned about that that woman who dealt with it and god chanting but some people are not able to overcome you know there are phases in your own life and uh, in your own thoughts what are some of the ways that the world should deal with death at this point of time because it has come to every doorstep it's hard to meet someone who has who's not seen it we lost three family members in the past year and uh, and four in fact i just thought about that four family members it's very diff- it's very difficult obviously very 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 painful i still feel tremendous sadness at Ramdas's leaving and KK also left the next month and in the last few years almost all of my elders everyone i went to for sustenance and teachings they're all gone i'm the elder now oh my god how horrible is that i feel sorry for other people you know that i'm the one, I, you know but at one point in india in the old days in the temple with maharaji 
I had had a girlfriend in America before I came to India, and we had broken up. And while I was in India, she actually killed herself. And uh, I was very upset about this. I mean, it, it really struck me very hard. I was very, very, very upset. And um, anyway, Maharaji was, he was teasing me a lot those days about getting married. And I didn't want to get married because I saw with the other Westerners, you know, as the days went on, couples would form, two people would get together, and Maharaji would look at them and go, oh, they're friends. Oh, they're friends. Oh, very good. You're friends. That's great. They're friends now. Oh, great. A couple of days later, you go, oh, they're good friends. They're very good friends. Oh, my goodness. They're very good friends. Very good. Very good. A few days later, huh? Shadi Hogia, you're married. Now go back to America. See your parents, right? No way was I going back to America. When I left America, I gave everything away. I sold everything that could be sold. I was never going back. That was my idea. I was never going back. And now I saw, you know, if I got pulled into a relationship, I saw what was going to happen. You know, boom, back to America. So I avoided it like the plague. So he was always teasing me, you know, knowing, of course, he knew everything. He knew how, how much I, I wanted to avoid that. So then uh, when my ex-girlfriend died, my former girlfriend died, I was very shaky. And a whole bunch of things happened. And I actually began to have a whole nervous breakdown right there in, in the temple. I was living in the temple. Really a psychological breakdown. I was hallucinating and I was out of control. There was nothing about this that I, I couldn't do anything about it. I was going down into this black hole. And in fact, I was sitting in a room in the back of the temple, and in the floor in front of me, this slow-moving, black, cloudy, black whirlpool started to open up, and it was going around like this, and I was being pulled down into it. And I was helpless. There was nothing I could do. I wasn't even fighting it. I was just going down. And somebody came to the door and said, Krishnadas, what? Maharaj is calling you. Come. Okay. And I got up. I went to the front of the temple. And I just fell in his lap. And I just cried. I, you know, I just completely fell apart and cried. Funny thing was, years later, that guy who called me, he said to me, did I ever tell you what Maharaji said that day? And I said, no. He said, quick, go find Krishnadas before he kills himself. So I'm just weeping, 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 crying. My head's in his lap, and he's just sitting there really quiet, and which was unusual. He, he was always moving around, throwing fruit around, talking to people. When I was crying, he was absolutely still, and I could feel inside of me this deep, deep, quiet feeling starting to grow. It was really powerful. And then he just started talking to me. He had asked me to read the Gita. And I had been reading the Gita when that whirlpool opened up. And he started to quote from the Gita, from the very chapter I was reading. And the soul is not born. Soul doesn't die, etc., etc. Can't cut it, can't wet it. He said, what are you going to do, jump in the river? Ha! He laughed. You know, the river was like six inches deep, you know. But I figured if I got my head down under a rock, I could, you know, I could probably do it, right? You know, what are you going to do, jump in the river? Ah, you know. And he said, you can't die. Worldly people don't die. Then he looked at me and said, only Jesus died the real death. 
what is he talking about? He said, he never thought of himself. The real death is the death of the ego. He said, a person dies and people cry and mourn. They don't eat, but after a few days, they're laughing and drinking and eating again. One attachment replaces another attachment, one after the other after the other. He said, samsara is the, is the flow of attachment. No attachment, samsara katamojaya. So what we call life is just a flow of attachment, daily life, samsara life. And he's saying that's not the real death, is the death of the ego, the, the death of separateness. But worldly people just keep coming and going. That's a tough one, you know, because we're emotionally attached and uh, involved with people, and it hurts when, we, when we're not seeing them anymore. But like my friend Bob Thurman, who's a great Buddhist scholar and practitioner, very close with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, he said, there are no dead beings. Bodies come and go, but beings do not die. It's hard. The only thing you can do is recognize that the love is still here that the love never dies. And that's the connection with that being just took off a suit of clothes and now is wearing a different suit of clothes. It's not something that you can talk yourself into, nor should you try to talk yourself out of feeling sad. But you can try to expand your perspective a little bit. You know, that's because all the great religions, all the great teachers that have ever lived have talked about this. And by the way, every single one of them has died. <laughs> There's not one person, well, except for some yogis who might be pretty old. There's not one person who was around 100, 200 years ago who's still around. So everybody dies. Everything dies. It changes, but it comes back again. You know, just like the fall, the winter, the spring, the summer, and the fall. The winter, the spring, and the summer. It's hard, and I don't, I'm not saying that I don't feel, I feel a lot of sadness these days, really. I, there's a heaviness in my heart about all the, the great beings that I'm missing, who, that I love so much and love to visit, and pisses me off, actually. The idea is we, we have to find out something, we have to find something that's real, and that something that's real is within us, and until we find that, we're just adrift on the ocean with no paddle, no oars, no, no sense of direction. We have to find something inside ourselves that's deeper than our thoughts and emotions, that's something that we can experience directly ourselves and not, not take anybody else's word for it. We have to taste it ourselves. And it's absolutely possible. And sooner or later it will happen because we're all going in that direction. It's just a question of when, you could say. And it could be right now. It's up to us. Again, thank you for that. The love is the answer, as you mentioned. And with love in the foreground and background... Why don't we move on to uh, towards the end of uh, of our podcast, where we ask a few questions, which is uh, about your life. More me. I love talking about me. More me. More yes. me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one word, one sentence, one paragraph, whatever you want. So the first question 
is one place that you would love to visit that you've not visited so far? Tibet, Mount Kailash. I would love to have gone there, but I think I'm too old now. Certainly, I can't trek to Mount Kailash anymore. I'm not. I can barely get out of the house. <laughs> and I've never been to Tibet. I, I would love to go. Although these days it's t- obviously very difficult there, but I'd like to spend. You know, really, uh, wh- wherever Maharaji wants me, that's where I, I'd like to be. That's what it comes. One time, Maharaji actually turned to Dada, one of his great old devotees. He said, Dada, if I've done one thing in this life, I've remained wherever Ram has placed me. That's, wow. Yeah. And there's something, and there's a line in the Ramayana that goes something like, uh, a person remains wherever Ram places him. That's where we are. So, yeah, ultimately, I would like to be able to surrender any of my own desires and be at ease wherever Ram places me. The next question, one childhood memory that brings smile to your face or that brings joy to your mind. Uh, how young a child? You can choose any. I remember sitting in a car coming back from day camp when I was probably eight years old and the sun was coming in in the windshield and came right on my face. I remember that feeling even now. There was something about that moment. Even then, I felt something. There's some special moment that I can still feel it right now. And, you know, it was, it was a few years ago, <laughs> 65 years ago, something like that, and I can still remember that moment. It was like a moment of here and now at that age. One person that you would like to meet in history? And what is that you would say to them now? One time I came to the temple in Vrindavan. Uh, I had been in Allahabad at the Kumbha Mela in 19... No, this was in... It wasn't a Kumbha, it was a Magh Mela in 1972, I think it was. And I came to Vrindavan. Maharaji was there in the temple. He wasn't seeing Westerners at that time. He kept us away for a while. So in the Ramcharitmanas, when Vibhishan comes to Ram, he leaves Lanka, comes to Ram. He says, Shravana Sujasu Sunyaum Prabhu Banjana Bhavabhir Trahi Trahi Arti Harana Sharana Sukadarabhir. Vibhishan says to Ram, you know, hearing of your glory and your renown, I come to you to save me, save me, O one who removes the sorrows. I wrote it on a piece of paper and I gave it to the Chokidar and I said, please give this message to Maharaji and I'm going to wait here. So the Chokidar goes in and he comes out again. He said, Maharaji says, He's considering it, and he'll let you know later. (laughs) I would just want to meet him again, physically. And that's what I would say to him. Save me. That gave me goosebumps. (laughs) A message for the future generation. (laughs) Well, if there is a future generation, it's the same message that you have for anybody and even for yourself. Don't give up. Try to find something real in life and try to treat other people the way you want to be treated. Become a good human being. That's what these spiritual practices are for, to give us the strength to overcome our selfishness, our greed, our shame, our fear, anger, so we can become good human beings, members of a good family, a family of of beings. This is our last request, your favorite chant. If you can sing that for us to close our time together. Sure.
So a few months ago I started biking and I was very close to our house I I started going out uh, of the campus that we live in once things started getting better and I found this little temple uh, next to a pond and I drove by it like I cycled next to it a few times and then it was a calling as if I something was there and it was I could see the Hanuman murti very small temple and uh, i could see the the picture of hanuman there and i went in and what i heard is what he sang and i drive by uh, it almost every other day when i go out and bike and, and try and stop and uh, surreal <laughs> that you sing the exact same thing that goes on there all the time beautiful well thank you so much my pleasure thank you it couldn't have been a better way for us to start a video podcasting and to end the show with this beautiful chant in your soulful voice of the god voice of ram thank you so much for taking out the time to speak to us from the bottom of my heart and thank you everyone who has tuned in today to listen to us to our podcast and especially to krishna das i hope uh, you keep chanting keep singing keep listening and uh, and be safe thank you thank you so much Amen.